0: didn't even need to read the script but read the script fell in love with it and then picked it up you know but when we picked it up its ceiling was probably going to be you know if it does really well he's got a bit of a brand maybe we'll make five million bucks you know that's a good foreign language you know no star driven release but the momentum just kept on going and going and going and it was the movie that everybody talked about which is also
1: Today on the show, we've got Tim League. Tim, thanks for doing this. My pleasure. So you've got kind of an exciting background. I'm interested in how you introduce yourself. You know, I I, I guess these days I'm the
0: founder and executive chairman of Alamo Drafthouse Cinema, and also a bit of an art school dropout myself. I don't often bring that up in conversation, but with you, I think I shall.
1: Yeah, that's great. So you guys have a you guys have a reputation for being like intense movie lovers instead of just like giant things of popcorn maximizers. And can you, can you talk about like just the different approach that you've taken starting there in Austin?
0: Sure. I, I, it goes back to the, the very beginning, right? Because I went to college. I was uh, a mechanical engineering student and a art and art history student. And I ended up getting a job at Shell Oil right out of school. And I, I knew really, really quickly that I wasn't going to continue that. And so I stuck with it for a couple of years and then I was looking for an exit plan and on my way to work was an abandoned movie theater and I was 24 years old and just decided to a week later, go ahead and rent that movie theater and become a movie theater operator with the, the only skill I had was that I was deeply, deeply in love with movies. And I think that, is the core of it right because i was completely ignorant of anything else i was like well if i was going to run a movie theater the inmates would run the asylum like it would be all movie lovers all day long and we'd we'd think about uh, issues that are important to us on how we could how we could be the best place to watch a movie and you know we've i've learned how to read a PL and i've you know learned uh, a few things about financing and such but uh, we still still are very true to that that we we hire A disproportionate number of completely movie obsessed people.
1: That's awesome. Can you talk about, can you talk a little bit about the food, about the no two year olds, about like the required (laughs) etiquette? This, this stuff is, as a total movie nerd, I, I love this about you guys. So, well, you know, the, we were a lot more hardcore
0: about like, do we even want teenagers? I don't know. It was back in the day. And then, you know, nine and a half years ago, I, I decided to have kids. I was like, well, maybe we should evaluate how we can, you know, reach out to these these kids because they're quite wonderful. But we still we still don't allow kids under two and we isolate shows that are kid-friendly and family-friendly and, we, you know, our core audience is still you know, the people that are come and and grab a pint of beer and are, you know, adults, right? But I I think a lot of that stuff came from those early days when we just brazenly went out and said, yes, we're going to open a movie theater. It's like, okay, let's, let's come up with the things that we hate. And let's make sure we like make a blood oath never to do those things. And and one of those was showing advertisements. And I, I, I used to say in the early days, I don't even want to know how much the money is because I don't it might tempt me to go against my principles. So let's just let's just never figure it out. We now know, and it's a lot of money, but it's it's better for the brand to to not show, you know, army recruiting ads and shampoo commercials before movies. and much like, you don't want to be watching, you know, Nomadland, and have a one-year-old crying or, you know, babbling about something that's not the movie. It's just, it's, it's rude. It's disrespectful. So,
1: so can you tell us a little bit about the distribution company, about the festival, about some of the other fun things that that have happened here?
0: Yeah, we you know, we started to grow a little bit, and there was a moment where for for pretty small movies, if we really got behind something, then we could make a significant difference. You know, we could be a force that could get uh, national publicity for a film. It's really hard to, to break in and have marketing and, and publicity happen on your own without theatrical engagement. So we became partners with filmmakers. And so a lot of these things first came the festival. So years and years and years ago, I went to Spain on vacation in, to a film festival. <laughs> probably telling. And it was like no other festival i had ever been to is it called Sitges in Sitges, uh, in Spain. And it, it focused on horror, science fiction, fantasy, weirdo movies from all over the globe. And it's like, oh my gosh, there's nobody but my people here at this, this festival. I love it so much. And so, yeah, we we we're, we're inspired by it. We ripped it off. Yeah. So that's the oldest of its type. And we became friends with, uh, you know, other cities that had festivals like that. And we wanted to bring that to Austin, but then we realized that so many of those movies never found a home. And, you know, we'd fall in love with movies, usually foreign language movies and realized two or three years later, the only way to see it was at that festival. And it's never been available in the States. So we put together our shingle of draft house films and ran that with this scrappy group of folks, but it, it was really tied into the festival and tied into the theater. You know, we would make sure that we, if we, if Draft House Films got behind a film, it would play at all Draft Houses. If uh, we would buy a lot of films out of Fantastic Fest, movies that we curated, you know, maybe the lucky few would get picked up by you know Searchlight or Focus or the big boys. But we're there for a much smaller offer for the movies we really loved to take them out in some capacity.
1: Well, and and you know some cool things have happened. Didn't, didn't Bullhead get like nominated for an Oscar?
0: Yeah, we, had, we had just formed the company and that was the second film that we had ever bought. And it was one that, that played Berlin and it was a, like a little too hard for an art film and a little too arty for a hard film. And it was like, that's our sweet spot. And so it came to, it's six months past and we played it at fantastic fest and it, it like was blew the audience away. and, and, Shortly thereafter, it got selected by Belgium to be their official selection for Academy Award. And then in January, it got nominated, which was we, at five o'clock in the morning, we got up with a bottle of champagne and we were celebrating for like a minute. And we are like, oh my, we have no idea how to do this. We have, how do you run an Oscar campaign?
1: <laughs> <laughs> and, and for people who haven't heard of it, can you give people just the quickest synopsis on what that one was about?
0: Sure. So, it's, it's based on a true story in Germany, and it's about a young man who was in kind of the punk scene in Germany, but he was a devout Christian, and he, at a show, he had an epileptic seizure, and a guy picks him up and takes him home, takes care of him, but that guy is, like, a, a very, very serious, like, angry, basically atheist, right, and he see he doesn't, he wants to kind of test this kid's faith to see, you know, if he can break his faith in a way, so... He, you know, ends up sort of abusing him and it becomes, I don't know, this really interesting portrait of, you know, Christianity. And it's, it's, it's a beautiful film, really, really strong first time female director who who, she's gone on to do other great films as well. I don't know, just, it's. It's a total package of like the the great performances, really visceral story, but has something really wonderful to say about the true nature of Christianity. So, yeah, we took it out. We fell in love with it. We only work on movies we fall in love with. So,
1: Well, that's great. You know, I think one of the things that I kind of admire about you and the approach that you have is, I was reading. I think it was something in Variety about you, and you said, "You know, our our movie theaters are not competing with video on demand. We're not competing against Netflix. We're competing against going out to dinner. We're competing against going to a play. Like this needs to be an experience, not the commodity." Is the message I got from it? Can you can you elaborate on that?
0: Uh, sh- sure. Yeah. I mean, I absolutely agree. Uh, you know, uh, you know, alas, a, a large part of the movie industry is a commodity business, unfortunately. And I think with the rise uh, of popularity of streaming during COVID, I think the pressure's on, you know, I would love it if everybody had the same lens that like by the best of my ability, we're going to create a wonderful experience when you have chosen to entrust us with your rare night out. Right. And so I absolutely do believe that, that uh, we're not competing with Netflix and Hulu and Disney and, apple and all the rest and you know I, I folks that watch a lot of things on streaming platforms love movies and they actually watch they also those are the same people that watch a lot of movies in movie theaters and you know maybe with this recent advent of every you know so much content coming out maybe people go out of the home five percent less than they did a year ago I, that's i don't know where i came up with that number that's arbitrary no research or data but you know if, if COVID has taught us one thing, it's we crave to be out of the house. We crave to be with others. We we crave to have experiences that aren't on my laptop or, you know, my couch.
1: Yeah, I, I for being such a nerd for movies, like my, mm-hmm. so we run this commercial real estate fund, right? Greystokeinvestments.com. Everybody check us out. The, yeah. But my one partner is the guy who got me to drop out of art school. Okay. And he's a self-made millionaire. And he told me like 20 years ago, he's like... Cause I was going to draw for the movies. That's I was going to go to art center in Pasadena and be a concept illustrator. Right. And he's like, you realize if you got rich enough, Jess, you could, you could draw for whatever movie you want. Cause you could be making the movie. Right. <laughs> so I'm still, I'm, I'm 20 years in haven't made my movies yet, but I'm, I'm, yeah. I'm working for it. But to me, like, I think, I think one of the things that I like about this approach and this mindset is like my favorite one of my very favorite real estate developers of all time. So this guy from LA named Rick Caruso. He did the Grove. I know, did... I know Rick Caruso, yeah. Okay. <laughs> and he's like, he says like, hey, malls are doomed. You know, like bad, bad malls are doomed. Because if if the mall is holding you hostage because that's the only place you could get the stuff, that mall is out of business because Amazon can bring it to you. But you know mm-hmm. what Amazon can never bring to you? is like taking your kids on the trolley at the Grove. They, you know, what Amazon can never bring to you is like a, a nice non-chain local restaurant with like great ambiance and energy. Like he, Amazon can't bring you that, you know? And so he's like, same thing that that uh, Bruce Flatt at Brookfield says. Bad malls, bad malls are going out of business and the good malls are actually going to benefit from it. Mm-hmm. Because there is, there is still this, for the right experience, there is still that desire and... Like the commodity, this is just my thought. I want to hear what you think. But the commodity version of going to the movies because you can't see it otherwise feels like maybe there is a change there. Mm-hmm. But like the experience of like, I've got four kids. The experience of getting out of the house. Is, <coughs> HBO Max is never going to po- provide that, you know? Yeah, I,
0: I mean, I am a, I'm a movie crier. Like, I, I mean, it doesn't really take that much for me to just really start bawling. It's kind of embarrassing sometimes. I I, I sit through the credits a lot of times just because it's too embarrassing to walk out of the theater being <laughs> such a crybaby. But that doesn't necessarily happen to me in in home viewing, you know, like I there's something about the immersive quality of the big sound and picture where you're actually just lost and transported into the story where all of your emotions are heightened it's you know you remember it more it's just a deeper experience and you know I'm I am like the no talking no texting guy right but I I mean a dirty secret is sometimes if the movie hasn't engaged me at home and I'm watching it on my laptop in bed which is terrible it's like ah just I just check email a little bit, you know, and it's, it's, you know, that is, you can't do that. At, you shouldn't do that at a cinema. I shouldn't do it at home. I shouldn't even have admitted it to you, but sometimes it's part, of, <laughs> it's part of the home viewing where it will never live up to the cinematic experience.
1: Well, and here's the other one is, you know, again, I'm a real nerd for movies you know, we, we built this house out in the mountains and we've got this one big blank wall so we can project onto it like eight feet by 20 feet. Like it's a, it's a decent size, right? But you and know do more at home? I end up watching something on my iPhone, not even a laptop. <laughs> I'm like watching on my iPhone out of convenience. And that is not, you know, he, Utah had theaters open up earlier than some other places. Mm-hmm. And me and my 14 year old went and saw Tenet in person. And when there was hardly anybody going to theaters and I've since started watching it on iPhone. It was, it just, it's almost not even the same movie. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. Yeah. For, for some blockbuster or something like that. Right. So my question for you is there are inevitably changes. There's always changes in society. When you think about navigating yeah. the next decade, what are kind of the principles that you look at?
0: Navigating the next decade. Well, I think, First, I've never been terrifically change averse. Like I, I like, I like change, you know, an, an example, it's, it's not looking forward. I'll go back first, but then I'll look forward. You know, the last big disruptor into our industry was movie pass when that came out. And, you know, so much of the industry press was like, this is, this is the end you're devaluing our, our, our proposition here. This is going to destroy the, the, it's going to destroy the, I mean, people are always saying that about cinema, you know, but we looked at it and we're like, that's, that's really clever, right? And their model was flawed, right? Because they're an intermediary between us and our customer and there's not enough money there. But for us, like, you know, people spend a decent amount of money on concessions with us. Like, so we immediately said, I like this mentality of having a subscription service You know, we know enough about it, about the psychology of gym memberships and how many times you actually go, how many times you think you go. This this could be really great. And so we immediately set out to create it, right, and to have our own, but to not let MoviePass get in between. And we still had it turned off because we don't think there's enough um, variety in the market yet. We're going to turn it back on in a couple months. But we had it on for about six months, and it was Fabulous. We were finding people would bring friends. They would go, they would explore more. We could convince we'd we'd push them an advertisement for a parasite, for example, and to a person who maybe would not have seen it otherwise. And it's like, well, that's free. I'll just go see it. So it was it was a really exciting frontier that we're gonna pick back up. So like this that idea of moving uh, subscription economy into cinema, huge believer of, and we're gonna we're gonna keep on pressing that. You know, I think during the pandemic, when we opened up initially, about fifty percent of our business was coming from private theater rental, and that experience we're gonna dive into. A lot of folks are are abandoning that. We're gonna kind of lean into and find find out how to make that work in a post pandemic world because the the experience is really cool. It's, it's it's different when you're there with your friends and your pod than you are with 200 strangers. So I find that interesting. But then I'm also a very old-fashioned type of person. I mean, the the nature of what is a movie had one significant change. And, you know, that was in 27 with the advent of sound. And there hasn't been anything of consequence since then. And I don't really want there to be, you know, uh color. There was color. But other than those two things, I love the purity of the motion picture without bells and whistles. I, you know, I'll I'll take Dolby Atmos for the right movie, you know. I'll i I'll even tolerate a, a motion seat for F9. But but if I'm like at my heart and soul movies, it's bright picture, crisp, clear sound, and just a story that's gonna give me goosebumps. And so I'm not actually looking for innovation. It, I think the innovation for me will come from the seamless nature of technology, how it can like take anything but the beautiful image and sound on screen away. Like just don't don't hassle me with any bureaucracy of paying out my check or, you know, you know, interacting with people. Just bring me to the movie and bring me out of the movie and don't bug me. So,
1: Well, and and again, back to like the Rick Caruso, you know, Bruce Flatt at Brookfield type of mentality of be the best. So, mm-hmm. you know, some people will lose, but the winners will actually gain from those losers, right? Like you're not just selling like $2 worth of licorice. Like you guys have like good food. Like yeah. if there's anybody who's going to make money on concession, it's somebody who's <laughs> Who's uh, got the food and drinks that you guys have, right?? Yeah,
0: yeah it's you know there's 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 three things that I'm I, I really love in this in this world It's movies and food and beer. And so I kind of crystallize this triangle of things that I, that are important to me and I, yeah I'm, I love my job.
1: <laughs> <laughs> That's awesome. Well, and I like this idea of, of how you said you're not necessarily change adverse, you know can you talk about? Uh, Do I understand you guys did something with with Draft House Films, did something with Tubi, the Fox?
0: Sure. Yeah. So what's an interesting uh, story with Draft House Films. So we ran it and I self-financed it for six years and we released 42 movies. And then at the end of that run, I had a, a partner and longtime friend in the distribution business, Tom Quinn, who was at magnolia and then at radius and we would our 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 families would run a uh, house together in Cannes every year and uh, he was going to start his own thing for uh, starting his own distribution company and i was out there trying to raise some money so i wouldn't be self-financing draft house films Uh, but we didn't talk about it because we were competitors and then had a couple glasses of rosé in france and took our guard down and mentioned that we were doing that and Merge forces so we we formed uh, neon together oh I didn't know um, okay and so yeah so draft house films the whole that whole team merged into the the neon team and tom's team from radius that's that was the, the beginning of neon but then draft house films we never really did anything it just sat on the shelf so one of my covid projects was to find uh home for the library that wanted to continue because neon's done really well you know parasite was our our big Success. I don't think you can get bigger success than that. And uh, so we're moving on to bigger films, but I'm still interested in the strange weirdo draft house films type of foreign language films like that. And so we ended up sub-distributing the library to a company called Giant. And they wanted to resuscitate the brand. And so part of that was licensing the library to 2B and, you know, putting it basically ev- like the, you could, I want the films to be available anywhere and everywhere on all platforms. But then we're working together with them to release a, a couple of strange movies. Our first is this Indian film that played Fantastic Fest in 2019 called Jallikattu which is about, it's sort of like, if you can imagine Jaws, but not in the ocean in an Indian village and the shark is a rampaging bull. That's, uh, that's Katsu.
1: <laughs> Too funny. Well, maybe we should cover this because I bet there's lots of people that don't know that that don't know about Bong Joon-ho or, or par- even what Parasite is, let alone the Oscars. And can, can, you, can you tell people, can you give people a little bit of background there?
0: Sure. So Tom, my, my partner at Neon, he has a long relationship with Bong Joon-ho. And we've I've worked with him to promote a lot of those movies. He had a movie called The Host many years ago that we had the U.S. premiere at Fantastic Fest. Oh, really? I uh, had never
1: heard of him before that. I loved that movie. I thought it was so funny. It was so, so great. Yeah.
0: Well, I can safely say that you can become a Bong Joon-ho completist and watch all of his movies and be very satisfied. So he's done no wrong. And so... They needed finishing funds for Parasite. And so it was a very quick, yes, absolutely. We're going we're gonna to invest early after, you know, didn't even need to read the script, but read the script, fell in love with it, and then picked it up, you know, but when we picked it up, its ceiling was probably going to be, you know, if it does really well, he's got a bit of a brand, maybe we'll make 5 million bucks. You know, that's a good foreign language, you know, no star driven release, but the momentum just kept on going and going and going. And it was the movie that everybody talked about, which is also a a bit of a statement for the power of cinema. Like there's no way without, you know, a theatrical release for that type of slow buzz build to accumulate over three, four months of theatrical. And it was kind of a perfect storm. So you know, your best, it's the first time ever there's been a foreign language film that won, you know, best director, best picture, let alone best screenplay. And, and
1: what was so, the fourth? It was four Oscars, right?
0: It um, was, it was. Oh, my Zoom. Super Hold on.
1: Don't worry. I'll just look it up on Wikipedia. <laughs> <laughs> I do that? Yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> we'll, so I was gonna we'll say something wrong. So. It's, it's, I think I know what it, but anyway. But, okay. Uh,
0: best picture,
1: what... best director, best original screenplay, best international feature. Is that, is that them? Yeah. yeah.
0: I forgot about the other one. It's best, yeah. Previously known as foreign language film. Okay, right, okay,
1: yes, of course, yes.
0: <laughs> okay, uh, congratulations, um, by the way.
1: Thank you, thank you. I don't know. It's, Hold so, on, I gotta get on Box Office Mojo and see how much it made. Hold on. I can tell you, but how uh, much did it
0: make? It made just over fifty million dollars theatrically, and and it is it is the essence of why we had. Why we got into this business, right? Why we started Draft House Films? Why we started Fantastic Fest? Is like getting people over the subtitle barrier. Like, it, like there's such an astonishing world of movies that we just don't really have access to from other cultures. People that are, you know, working in traditionally American genres of, you know, you know the horror, science fiction genre films, you know, but as interpreted through their life and another culture entirely. So we're so passionate about that. And it's, it was, it was the triumph. I mean, I can, I could retire tomorrow and just say, this is, this is the greatest thing that's ever happened.
1: <laughs> How fun, what a, what a, cause I mean, you've been at this a while. That's gotta be like a fun, yeah. like, you know, me- meteoric rise and like compound interest of all this work over all these years.
0: Yeah, it's funny. Yeah, we've been at it for 25 years. And that, that bullhead year, where it was our first Oscar, there's a, it's, there's a, there's a hierarchy on who gets tickets. And so we got two tickets. We had to give them, obviously, to the talent, right, to the director and the star. And so they went. So I didn't have a ticket. And so I just tried to I called everybody I knew who was an Academy member and said and I ended up through a friend of my father's finding a costume designer who agreed to take me as her date if I bought her dinner. (laughs) <laughs> so I kind of had to beg to get to the Oscars the first time and then we got pretty good seats for this last one
1: <laughs> yeah yeah I bet well when you think about when you think about the dangers of loving what you do so much mm-hmm. that it, you can get tempted to ignore profits like I think about having an action sports brand like mm-hmm. I mean I haven't stopped thinking about it for 25 years since <laughs> since I was a kid right and and yet my other friends who have snowboard brands or have bought into snowboard brands like the one recently sold back out. Cause like, I didn't have enough time to snowboard anymore, <laughs> <is> the <laughs> but there, there can be these temptations for folks of the, like maybe not treating it as serious of a business because it's so much of a hobby. Can you talk about principles of like how to do what you love and make sure to not accidentally get kicked out of the business by, mm-hmm. by, by not being, by not, you know, bringing some business mentality to it.
0: Sure. <laughs> I mean, I, there's a, a big part of me that's still an engineer, right? That was my, 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 my training. And I, I think that the abstract aspect that I still use all the time is, is problem solving. Like that's all that business really is when you boil it down. Like there's, you know, each day has a whole bit of new, new little problems, big, small. And so I think from the beginning, we've had a sense of the importance. And I, and I think you learned this also from the early days is managing the dollars, you know, because if you don't, you're, you're, there is no magic pile of money that you can tap into. You must or you fail. And that's kind of driven into you.
1: But some people, some people don't figure that out until it's too late.
0: Mm, oh, well, I, we, you know, we failed first. I don't know if we talked about that, but so our, our first theater was in Bakersfield, California, where I was an engineer at Shell. Totally. I mean, we had some good memories there, but financially disastrous. Okay. And so, you know, we, we lived behind the screen. We, it was just, you know, my girlfriend, we got married during that stint. So it's just the two of us, no employees because there was no customers. Right. And so like every penny counted. So I think, Maybe if you go in with a bigger pile of money, you're maybe more prone to waste it. But if you have nothing and you're, you know, you must survive that, that was just drilled into my head early, you know, but, but lately in 2018, we brought in some private equity for the first time. And that was interesting because yeah, I, I recently, you know, during COVID I made the uh, decision to go ahead and step down as, as CEO and assume this role of executive chairman in part Because, you know, the CEO is a very, there's a lot of facets to it. And I would never consider myself to be a particularly strong operator, for example. I am probably not the strongest financial analyst, for example. And, you know, my strengths are more in on the creative side, the brand side, the innovation side. And it's actually hard to lean into those and then be the CEO, and be you know running the entire business and so my intent there was to spend more time innovating and have a a, a very strong partnership with the operations and
1: ceo interesting well i'm interested i mean business is a team sport anyways right mm-hmm. yeah. we got to get people who can cover those other parts of the spectrum <laughs> Because I am highly lopsided myself. <laughs> Tell me this: when you think about when you think about the business of movies, and, and specifically, you know, the the kinds of movies that that you pursued, the maybe like the more quirky, the more fun, the more artsy, the like you know, less like copy and paste sequel of a sequel of a sequel kind of side of the business. What do you feel like are some of the principles to that? To that more like the film purist side of the business and actually being profitable and being around.
0: Well, I mean, any art house theater operator would probably call me, you know, you know, complete charlatan, right? Because okay. I'm, not, I'm not purely that, right? Sure, sure. And I, and I also—that's <laughs> the
1: reason you're still here. <laughs>
0: <laughs> so
1: our, our makeup is probably
0: seventy percent of our 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 box office revenue is from blockbusters, from okay. big movies. Twenty percent comes from indies and. 10% comes from alternative content and repertory classic films. Right. So we're still Harry Potter and the Avengers still pay the bills for us. Right. But we also, but we have this 30% where a traditional theater, that's probably more like 3% for them. Mm. And it helps us to kind of level out the curves, the peaks and valleys of the the strong times when you got the new Marvel movie and the weak times where there's, you know, nothing you've ever heard of out there. So I, I like building little niche audiences around different types of content. I hate that word, you know, content. But movies, so yeah, I'll stop there.
1: <laughs> well, you know, it, it's interesting. I'm, I'm a real audiobook nerd. I'm always listening to my books. And, you know, 600 of these interviews later, you start noticing things like similar principles that show up interview after interview or book after book, mm-hmm. right? And one of the things that, I see and it's not new, but I think I've just heard it so many times now I actually believe it. Is this idea of being different in a valuable way is one of the strongest financial entrepreneurial principles there is. Like hmm. people try to have like a bigger theater than the last one or a louder theater than the last one or you know these kind of things and like yet over and over like the people that do really well have they have like a mini monopoly on their thing because they have gone so deep this one direction and they're kind of like the only one or like they're the main one who's gone the deepest that direction it's different in some valuable way you know you hear like the grateful dead you know where they said don't be the best be the only and it's like they're not trying to sell records they let people record you know how many years did they let fans record their shows and trade the tapes and stuff like this right And yet the band goes on to make $350 million, you know, and something that they like, they just lived their brand so hard that it wasn't necessarily trying to be better than the competition. It's trying to be different than the competition. Do you have any, anything to say about that?
0: I will tell you, you know, I'm, I'm drawn to the unusual a lot of times. And I, I remember it's my wedding day. It was our first day off from the theater because we got married during those Bakersfield days and my best man was in the back seat. My dad was driving us to lunch, and my best man was making a joke about how stupid my tuxedo was going to be the next day. Okay. We're driving down the freeway, and my dad like just like slams on the brakes and is like, "Tim, for once in your life, could you just be normal?" <laughs> <laughs> just so, that was the breaking point. Just me having a novelty tuxedo at my wedding was going to be—is this like one step too weird for my dad? So I—I don't know. Do I have anything? To say, which is
1: like, I mean, because the festival, that like yeah. the people that you went and and like that you're seeking out these films that that nobody else is playing in the country, that you know, I mean, like you're intentionally, you know, you weren't just like throwing a Marvel party. Do you know what I mean? Yeah, like I mean, you I, you went deeper into something that wasn't already being covered. Well, there's a, something in it, at least I don't not think in Austin. You, you know, we didn't necessarily set out this
0: way to be at the festival because we were just trying to produce the best event for this community that we were a part of, right? And then what we found is by doing, and we have all these like crazy weird events every night at the festival. that You don't see at any other festivals. You know, for example, there's something called the Fantastic Debates where it's a formal high school debate between actors and directors and journalists where they talk about issues of movies, but they're in a boxing ring with headgear and gloves. And so after the debate, they fight. So <laughs> the two rules to, to be a part of that is you have to fight for real and you have to debate for real. And so no, no jokes on either, either side, but what that does is we'll have filmmakers come in who are young emerging filmmakers that we're, we're fond of, and we try to show them the best time. And we introduce them to this community that loves their weird work and wants to celebrate their weirdness. And they just feel like, oh my God, I found my tribe. I found my community. And so they'll come, like, we'll have filmmakers that, you know, like Ryan Johnson's been there a bunch of times. One of his stars fought in the fantastic debates, even when he doesn't have movies. And like I think, for people
1: that don't know his movies, what are the most likely, you know, what, where would you? Uh,
0: so he most recently did Knives Out, but he's probably best known for being the most divisive of the Star Wars movie. The, uh, the Rise of Skywalker, which I, I love. And a lot of people just hate because it showed a weak side of Luke Skywalker, but whatever. So yeah, I I think it's being a genuine member, being a fan, like a genuine fan and our, our, you know, because it's, I think it's so often faked, like, oh, we have to start this brand because this is popular and people are into it. But if you, you know, hire a team and they're dedicated and completely committed to the principle and the philosophy and the vision behind it, it's, it's different than architecting something out of you know commerce
1: sure well you get interviewed far fancier places than this tell me what's a question that you wish people would ask more or a question you don't get asked oh,
0: man that's a hard one it's funny i'm thinking back to the uh, the bernie sanders election i was a big bernie sanders fan i was just hoping people would ask me my opinions about the p- politics but then you know it's pretty. Uh, it's not it's Oftentimes, I've had it's, it's interesting because I've I've had to find that balance between you know when are you political when are you not as uh, a leader of business right because it's a it's a fine line but I I still I still like to be kind of political every now and again I'm tired of talking about safety protocols for for vaccines that's the opposite answer I you know I I strangely I like to talk about about movies you know and i, let's, I think a lot let's, of time... let's start
1: there for a minute what are, where okay. are what are a couple of your favorite movies of all time i
0: I'll, I'll tell you i'll tell you this before i answer that question director here in town richard linklater who's done a bunch of movies who did dazing and fuse slacker and a bunch a bunch of clips yeah, yeah. he likes to answer that with a different movie every time
1: okay. He likes to like
0: ponder and then say i think it's the shirley McLean film some came running it's like <laughs> I think it's you know whatever it's it's got to be breathless you know so whatever but and he tries not to repeat himself uh, <laughs> that's a fun uh, game I don't I have a really soft spot for 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 silent film and in in large measure because it shows I, I remember a time when we first opened the theater in Bakersfield where I loved movies but I, I loved what I loved right I was a video store kid in the 80s watched a bunch of horror movies and, you know, R-rated movies when I was 14, trying to be secretive about it from my mom. And then in college, I got to uh, watch more, you know, art films, you know. But I had not really done justice to silent films. And I had kind of written them off because you, you kind of see clips of them. and They look corny. And, you know, maybe they're sped up because a lot of them were shot at, uh, you know, a lower frame rate and they're sped up. You know, they're shot at 18 frames and they're sped up to 24. So it looks kind of slapstickish. And a lot of it was slapsticky, but I think I go back to like City Lights, Chaplin's City Lights and Buster Keaton's The General. And I remember the first time I watched both of those movies, I was in my twenties and I was like, wow, we, the evolution comedy has actually not, these guys invented it and it hasn't evolved that much because it's it's subtle. It's got this, you know, what I love about Bong Joon-ho is, you know, this, this extreme, this a wonderful comedy interspersed with the, the deepest of emotions. It's it's there, and and I feel like not enough people go back and watch silent films. So it's something we we try to build a little audience for that here too.
1: Oh, that's fun. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I can say that I haven't spent much time with them, but even you saying it that may, way makes me want to go back and observe and and see what I can see. You
0: know, and a lot of times uh, the problem is they're they're paired with a really kind of ham-handed score not all the time sometimes they're really wonderful scores but we've done a a project and we're actually releasing a few more of these this winter where we'll we'll work with really cool bands and they'll just go into this time a covid lab right it's like and just dedicate themselves to rewriting a new score for silent films and something about modern sound recording and a, a modern sensibility of music like electrifies like amplifies those films so I'll, I'll send you a couple links.
1: <laughs> yeah. Did I read something? What's, I feel like you guys were doing, working on one for the, the original vampire movie of all vampires, uh, is that right? Nosferatu? Yeah.
0: Yeah. So it's back in, when the theater first opened up, this is again, a little, I had a lot of time on my hands during the pandemic. Not Theaters weren't open. So I went back to some of the original bands that we did the series with. And so it's a crazy band from the late nineties here in Austin called Brown Hornet. And they did a score in, for us in 1998 for Nosferatu. And I, f- I got back in touch with the guys and said, do you guys have a good recording? And so he had like four different recordings of it. And he spent some time in, in his lab kind of making the best possible iteration of the score. And so we re- re-released that on Alamo On Demand during the, during the pandemic. And I showed it to my, my uh, nine-year-old girls and they stuck with it until it got really scary at the end. (laughs) (laughs)
1: That's so fun. You know, another question I have for you is there's so many folks in business that recognize advertising isn't working like it used to. Mm -hmm. We need to do things that are are more engaging instead of just like trapping the audience and forcing them to see our ad, right? And you certainly see like the value of of an Amazon building Amazon Studios and, and, you know, like... Bringing everybody to their website over and over because they've got movies you can't get elsewhere. And in in my experience, so my one business partner at our fund, she used to run our charity called Child Rescue. Then she went on to like much bigger, bigger and better things. She she produced a concert called End of Polio in in Perth, Australia that raised 118 million dollars for polio from Bill and Melinda Gates and you know, Australian government and all these people. And she produced the first years of the Global Citizen Festival in Central Park with like you know, the biggest bands of the world, Neil Young and Foo Fighters. And I mean, you name it, it like all, right? All these movie stars up on stage helping charity. And so I'm kind of like consider myself in her entourage, right? So I follow around, I go to these events and 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 I see a lot of people objectify famous people saying like, oh, I really mm-hmm. want to get something from them. I really want to use them for my brand, but then not actually treat them like a real life human being and things don't go. Do you have any thoughts about that? About, you know, being friends with somebody like Richard Linklater or, you know, like... The guys that direct knives out in Star Wars and, you know, like how you approach your relationships with these people who are probably on guard a little bit for people that want to objectify them.
0: Yeah, I think it's been important, you know, because we have some famous people come to the theater, you know, for whatever event, whether it's Fantastic Fest or, you know, now that we have a theater open in L.A., it, it happens pretty regularly. And, you know, the lens that we, you know, try to impart to our people is just like, hey, you know these guys are big old dorks, just like you. I mean, they're, 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 they're probably even bigger dorks, right? They're, they're neurotic just like you and they're here because they love movies. And so the idea is, you know, the, why I think fantastic fest has a a special vibe is like, everybody just knows that like we have really famous people come to the festival and all people really do is talk about the movie they just shared together. I was like, oh my, did you see Jolly Katoo? Like, that's just like mind blowing. And so the guard kind of lets down and it's, it's this safe spot. I mean, I, I, you know, I, you, 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 see it. And the idea of being famous and being stopped on the street for an autograph or to, you know, for somebody to tell you that they love your movies, like the repetition of that, you know, that's gotta be such a huge, but End of the day, you know, I'm not terrifically famous, and but I got into this business probably for the same reason that the directors and a lot of the stars got into the business because they love storytelling. They love the amazing feeling you you get from watching a spectacular film, and it's and if you kind of resonate together on that, then you're going to make them happy, right? Because it's 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 probably not the norm from when they're walking down the street.
1: Yeah. You know, I, I'm interested in any thoughts you have. There, there are so many people in corporate America who, you know, wrote off art school, art school dropouts like my, like myself <laughs> and, and you, and like you know they were they are interested in serious things, right? And and yet, like the the branding potential, the the business growth potential by telling great stories is is pretty undeniable these days. I mean, you look at like Vox explainer videos, or you look at Red Bull, or you look at Bloomberg, or you look at these. Businesses that like, you know, Bloomberg media has got to be like less than 5% of their revenue or 3% of their revenue, but it makes selling their computers, you know, desktop terminals to traders possible because their, their media is so well done, right? Mm-hmm. For their audience. Not everybody mm-hmm. loves it. Red Bull, same thing. I mean, it's for selling sugar water, right? But <laughs> th- those like the action sports stories are told so well that it sells a lot of sugar water. Right. When you think about folks who are who are saying, man, maybe we should embrace storytelling and actually providing something of value to entice our customers instead of just another billboard ad, another TV ad. What are some principles for storytelling you would tell, you know, business folks or or startup entrepreneurs who are trying to tell the story of their business or stuff like that that might be listening today? Oh, man,
0: I think I think. You can smell fake like a, a mile away and so i and it's it's difficult because if your business is not if your business is not storytelling then there is going to be some sort of fakeness even in the the best of it you know a super early example is those you know the bmw short films which was kind of game-changing for you know really yeah, yeah, serious sure. money into telling stories that had just the tiniest little inkling of product placement. But even those yeah. have a little bit of, you know, things that make you a little nervous because it's it, the product placement is there you're looking for. It's like, oh, there it's, I'm in a car. I, I know I know what this is. So I think, you know, if there's legit stories about your community, if you're taking it down to kind of the, you know, ad based short form storytelling that get you excited, you know, if there's aspects of your brand that really do make you you know, giddy with enthusiasm and you genuinely want to tell people this amazing story about something meaningful that I've done as a course of my work, then, you know, that's the one you got to tell. But if you're, you know, fabricating it by committee, then, yeah. you know, maybe go ahead and keep doing the, the 30 second ads. I don't know. <laughs> <laughs>
1: that's a great, that's a great gauge, right? You know, when you're really honest with yourself and nobody's listening, like how genuine is the story? Yeah. It's gotta yeah. be, a, it's gotta be a huge effectiveness factor there because mm-hmm. we're, we're so wired for stories. I mean, like think about art school, right? The two mm-hmm. hardest things to learn to draw well are faces and hands. It's Cause everybody's a good critic. Do you know mm-hmm. what I mean? You can do a landscape and people can be like, I don't know if that boulder should really have gone there or not. Right. <laughs> you're like somebody's nose is too long. The, like the proportions are out of whack. Everybody knows it. Instantly we're we're all amazing critics of does that really look like a human face you know
0: <laughs> It's funny I have a uh, velvet painting of Farah Fawcett in my basement that I love that I found a, a vintage store here in Austin but the, the the artist had one hand stuck way deep into her head and then the other underneath her butt cuz he just never mastered the hands and so it's a handless Farah Fawcett <laughs>
1: gotta love the hacks gotta love well listen this has been really fun congratulations on all the success where where should we be sending people if they want to learn more about you guys online
0: just head up to a uh, drafthouse.com or alamo on demand this Is my covid project to putting that together so or neon rated is uh the website for for neon these days so i'm sorry i just gave you three urls that's, it's probably the best
1: that's great anything you want to leave with
0: you know, that's a, such a broad open-ended question that I'm going to have a hard time narrowing that down. You have any, so you're a movie fan. I'll ask you a question. What's a, what's a movie coming out in the latter half of this year that you're
1: excited to see? I'm going to kind of punt on that and say any, any spy movie. Like I was so excited when the Courier came out, you know, and I went, I went and saw that in the theater. I just, that's my, that's my addiction. So the movie I'm excited about is every spy movie that comes out. Interesting. Okay.
0: You know, it's not necessarily a a spy movie, but I have a, I have a weird, does, does, does crime and heists work into spies? It's close enough. I'm
1: all about like the special spy movies, but I can do like, I can do some, you know, a little like police drama, a little, little like heist, you know. I named my youngest kid Rusty after Rusty from Ocean's Eleven. So oh,
0: Yeah, I don't know. I mean, obviously, there's a James Bond movie coming out sometime soon. I'm looking forward to uh, French Dispatch, Wes Anderson movie. It's been delayed for so long, and now it's finally, finally coming out. When is uh, it? It's debuting at Cannes, which is pushed back from May to July. And so I think they're slating a September,
1: October release for it. Okay. Mm. Sounds good. I'll have to go see it <laughs> ASAP. Uh, <laughs> listen, this is great. Thanks again for doing this.
0: Oh, it's my pleasure. It's nice, uh, nice talking to you.
1: Okay, bye everyone. Bye.